Hey, this is Dan Blewett, and uh, this is Dear Baseball Gods, episode 50. So for this episode, I figured I'd keep it simple, and I would just kind of give as much knowledge about the curveball as I could. So it's obviously a pitch I threw my whole life, and it's a pitch that I'm passionate about teaching. It's, I think, very misunderstood, both from what it actually does and how we're supposed to go about learning it and what the standards are. You know, I mean... I get a lot of parents that ask like, oh, my kid only throws their curveball for strikes once in a while. It's like, that's pretty normal. Obviously, we want better than that, but it's pretty normal. It takes a long time to develop a really good one, and it takes a lot of mechanical prowess to develop a really good one. So that's what we're going to cover in today's podcast, and uh, pretty easy for me to talk for a couple minutes on that. So just as a reminder, if you want to sponsor the show, you can jump on the links to my Patreon page. And if you're looking for any uh, blog-related, video-related, podcast-related swag, jump on my website as well. All right, let's talk about the curveball. So number one, uh, I'm going to demonstrate grips here on uh, YouTube, but for you out there in podcast land, you're not going to be able to see what I'm doing. But basically, if you want to check out all the grips and all that stuff, I have a lot of other videos on YouTube. So Definitely jump on it there. I have a, a video called uh, 11 like Breaking Ball Fails and Fixes. Uh, but essentially what I'm going to say about the grip is this. The grip doesn't matter really that much. And there's a couple misconceptions with the grip. Uh, one, that if you throw a two-seam fastball, you just throw a two-seam grip curveball. Or that if you throw a two-seam grip uh, changeup, you just throw, only throw a two-seam fastball. I don't really believe that. I don't know that hitters can pick that up that well. That hasn't been my experience when I played uh, I've heard that from time to time, but I'm, I'm yet to see strong evidence that hitters can pick up the differences in seam that, and spin that much. Now, for hitters that or for cur- pitchers that throw a two-seam curveball, which looks like this, where it's going to spin end over end, if you do throw a four-seam fastball, or even if you throw a two-seam fastball, it looks very different because these railroad tracks, these seams, as they spin really fast, they're very, very red when they go end over end as a two-seam uh, configuration. So I had a pitcher throw one of those to me the other day, and it looked very bizarre. It looked very different. But basically the thing with the curveball is the grip is pretty simple. So you're wedging your middle finger along the roundness of the horseshoe here, and your, in, your middle finger is going to be on the inside of the seam, and your thumb is on the inside on the, theme on the, bo- of the seam on the bottom. And then they're going to sort of work together to turn that ball forward. So the middle finger is the pressure finger, and it's supposed to just sort of catch the edge of the ball like a knife as it starts to go forward to increase the spin. So we don't want to have the index finger on top pushing into the center of the ball where it's going to decrease the quality of our spin. Everything should be going to the front edge, really turning that baseball. So, you know, we don't want to make basically the only thing the index finger does. And this is a large misconception amongst guys who throw curve uh, or who teach curve balls to young kids is that the index finger really has much of a purpose. I had a, I had a teammate he was very dumb, uh, and he was telling me that his uh, index finger pushed the ball forward because he threw a knuckle curve, and that was why his curveball was so good. And I said, no, no, that's not how this works. Uh, your middle finger is actually going the other direction, and you're trying to push forward with this guy. They're going in opposite directions. The spin of the ball doesn't match up with the way that your index finger could actually even possibly push. And that was a, kind of a mouthful and a poor explanation, but uh, he was very dumb. And we got video and it was just, no, that's not what's happening. Like you think that's what's happening, but it's not. And he was very adamant. That's why I'm not hesitant to say that he was dumb uh, because he really wanted to fight about it. But 
Basically, the index finger is a placeholder. It's simply what you do with your index finger, so whether you stick it straight up, like Adam Wainwright does, you cross it over, you knuckle it, you put your fingernail in it, it just is a placeholder for that index finger. It doesn't increase the spin, it just is supposed to be there so it does not decrease the spin. The action of the middle finger can't really push the ball in any relevant direction to increase the spin of the pitch because your finger would have to go sideways, so like this motion here, to add anything to the ball. Pushing, like flicking, like you're flicking a booger or something, isn't the same direction that the baseball is going. The baseball is going 90 degrees perpendicular to that, so again, it just doesn't make sense. So don't think of a knuckle curve as a different pitch. Just think of it as a different finger placement. It's not a different pitch. For a curveball to be good, the physics is this. The physics of the curveball is it just needs to spin forward. It has to have top spin going in the direction that it's traveling and about a very clean spin axis. So that means it's spinning on just one equator forward in the direction it's traveling. That creates the Magnus effect, which is high pressure, low pressure, which forces the ball down faster than gravity would. So whether it's 12 to 6 or it's 1 to 7, and if you're a lefty, that's 12 to 6 or 11 to 5, Either way, you want to have a clean spin axis, which means there's not a lot of other spin mixed in. It's very straight on one axis uh, in the direction that it's traveling. That's what's going to give you a good breaking ball. So now, the thing with the breaking ball is, sorry, curveball, is that most pitchers' mechanics, when they're young, don't allow them to get to the front of the baseball very well. So if you fly open on your front side, or you just, in general, you have downhill shoulders, or in, just, in general, you don't have great mechanics, it makes it extremely difficult to deliver your hand to the front of the baseball where it's supposed to be and to get reliably good spin on a curveball. So your mechanics have a large part to do with how good your breaking ball can be and how good it currently is. So most young kids, uh, they tend to really rotate too much to get power and they tend to fly open their front side, both of which cause the hand to slip around the baseball. And then we mix too much side spin in along with some forward spin, some top spin, and then we get too much of a sloppy spin axis, so not very clean, straight in one direction, but some side spin, some forward spin, and then the pitch doesn't break very well. Or if you get on the side of it and you just throw this little league curveball where the ball's spinning more sideways than it is forward, then gravity, that Magnus effect is not going to take hold of the baseball. There's not going to be a high pressure, low pressure. It's just going to sort of fall to the ground with gravity quicker because there's no backspin to keep it up. That's sort of what the Little League curveball does. It almost just like increases gravity's effect because, again, if, it's not, if it doesn't have backspin, it's not going to resist gravity. And, again, backspin doesn't make it rise. It just reduces the effect of gravity. So when you put that side spin on it, it just gravity takes hold of it a little quicker because it's not getting the resisted backspin um, or the, the backspin's resistance to gravity. So getting on the side of a breaking ball of a curveball, sorry, I won't cover sliders in this. We'll just talk about curveballs, but getting on the side of a curveball is the enemy of the curveball. Getting to the front of the curveball is what we have to do. Now, when we talk about it and I demonstrate here in this video, I tell kids to try to get their middle knuckle pointed towards the plate and their middle fingernail facing towards the plate. So if they see that, that's kind of what we're thinking about. But that's not in reality what happens. If you look at slow motion video, the pitcher's hand can't get that far to the front of the baseball. Really, it gets pretty, it's, it's kind of like out to the side a little bit. And then the fingers do get forward. They start to wrap around the baseball, but they're still more sort of on the side at the end. But there's sort of like this last minute sort of aligning 
where they're coming around the baseball, but then at the last minute they can sort of catch it right to sort of realign the spin. That's really more what happens. But again, what actually happens, it's just what if what you're saying happens and what actually happens differs only because of how you're thinking about it, that's kind of okay. When you're saying that, no, this is actually what happens and this is why it happens, when that's just blatantly wrong, but you don't know that it's wrong, like my friend in the in the in the previous example, the knuckle curve, then that's more of a of a difficult thing to to reconcile. So when I tell pitchers to get their knuckle their middle knuckle pointed or their middle fingernail pointed towards the plate, that's me just trying them to get them to think, getting linear with their their body, not rotating, not letting their hand get around the ball, so they can get to the front of it and start to try to align that spin towards the plate they're never actually going to get their middle knuckle to face the catcher and they're never actually going to get their fingernail, but it sort of feels that way because that's the way I conceptualize as a player as well. And I know that what I'm teaching is mostly getting the result that we want, whether it happens exactly that way, isn't as relevant because I know that's not exactly what happens. So there are good things to think about and pretend that they happen to get, still get the result that we actually want. But again, getting to the front of the baseball is what we're, what we're thinking about. And that actually is how it feels when you catch it right. You do feel this sort of out in front of the ball feeling when you catch it right. So the, the thing to think about with the curveball is this. If you're a parent or a coach or a young player, you probably want to start learning it entering your freshman year in college. Or I'm sorry, not college. You're entering your freshman year in high school. And this is because it takes a couple years for it to be good. You have to, pla- you have to practice with the pitch a ton. You have to be patient with it. You have to understand what you're trying to accomplish because number one is getting the hand action down and getting forward directional spin. Once you start to get some of that, then it's starting to increase the the speed of the spin. So faster RPMs means tighter break, means sharper break, uh, all that stuff. It's just, it's a learning progression and it takes time. So at first, everyone's inclination is to get around it. They just want to see some break and you can get to see some break doing almost anything. But to get an actually quality breaking ball that's going to play in college and potentially play in pro ball, uh, you have to have, number one, a coach who's going to give you honest feedback and who's going to be able to watch the pitch from the catcher's point of view. Because as a pitcher, I can tell you that if I threw 10 breaking balls to my catcher, even as a pro, I couldn't tell him which of those 10 were the best. I could tell him maybe which ones were better than others, but I couldn't align. If I threw 10 pretty decent normal ones for strikes... I couldn't tell you which ones were sharper than the next ones. Only my catcher could tell me that. They all have a similar looking break after a while. And often the bigger ones that look prettier, they have like this nice big shape to them. They're usually the loopier ones. So your eyes play tricks on you as a pitcher. And it's, it's tough to tell from behind or from the pitcher's point of view, which are the absolute sharpest ones. So you need a good catch partner. You need a good catcher or a coach, someone observing from the hitter and the catcher's point of view how good your pitch actually is. There's a lot of tools out there, obviously TrackMan, Rapsido, FlightScope, that will tell you your spin rate, and that's a good objective measure of how sharp your curveball is going to be, how deceptive and how many swings and misses you're going to get because higher spin rates correlate with that. Higher spin rate just means a sharper breaking pitch pretty much. But that's still not necessarily a substitute for the eye test. A catcher can tell you which out of 10 curveballs or which out of 100 curveballs is the best. He can tell you which ones are sharper. He can tell you which ones are more deceptive. He can tell you which ones are better quality pitches. You don't need a Rapsido for that. You don't need a TrackMan for that. But if you're a scout and you're not directly behind the plate, you know, the, the view from the stands, 
is very ambiguous. Uh, if you're from the side or you're from the dugout or you can't get to see a guy in person or whatever, then those objective measurements make more sense. They matter more because you can't see it from the hitter or the catcher's perspective. But as a coach, you know, you don't need these tools to help guys. And as a player, you just need a good catch partner who will be honest with you and tell you which of these pitches uh, are sharper than others. So the process is really important. The process is just throwing it a lot in practice at slow speeds first, looking for well-aligned spin and having a partner who can re reinforce that. If you don't have a partner who can reinforce that, then you have to kind of find one because otherwise it's going to be, you can tell yourself a to a degree, but you really need someone to show you the way, at least initially, of what good spin looks like and what good spin feels like. And then when you say, okay, I know what it looks like and I know what it feels like, then I can start to reinforce on my own. That's just about someone giving you the tools to do it yourself. So the amount of kids that I see that come in for a lesson with me of any age that throw a curveball that isn't garbage is like less than 5%. Because it's, it's a pitch where it's just so hard to say, I'm just going to naturally throw this pitch and I'm just going to somehow naturally really well align the spin, get extremely fast, tight spinning, uh, a tight spinning pitch on a very clean spin axis. That's just a, kind of a big task. They have to have really good mechanics. They have to just be naturally good at spinning the ball and somehow just get the result that they want with having any real knowledge of it. Uh, it's extremely, extremely rare. So for me, if your son wants to be a, a high-level pitcher, a college or pro pitcher, he has to work with somebody one-on-one -on -one to develop a breaking ball. Uh, it just it just has to happen because it's almost like the monkeys on typewriters thing. What are the odds are going to come up with not only Shakespeare, but just like a, any coherent sentences, right? Um, it's just, it's such a difficult pitch. And even for kids that I teach it to, and we do a lot of lessons, it takes a long time, like a year to two years for it to be a really, really good pitch. And anyone who says it's faster than that, now, granted, there are some kids who like catch on pretty quick, but it's not good in the real sense of like what real curveballs look like. Um, but they're starting to get it pretty quick. So just, the learning curve is different for everybody, but for you to have a curveball that you can throw for a strike, bounce when you need to, uh, and is like sharp enough to be a college quality pitch to get college hitters out, it takes a while, it takes a couple years. So be patient with it. Because the number one thing you don't want to do is spend a whole winter with a grip, spend a whole winter learning it, and then get to the season, bounce a couple, walk a couple guys with it, and then your pitching coach says, oh yeah, let's throw a slider. Have you ever tried this? Try this, try this, try this. There's a process that you have to stick to. Just because you're not perfect with it today doesn't mean it's not going to be better over time. And I laugh with another pitching coach of mine recently about how, you know, a pitcher, I think it was like 12 or 13 was telling me, I'm like, so, you know, like, how did you out? go, well, I, I couldn't throw my chain up for strikes. Uh, I only probably threw for strikes like 50% of the time. I'm like, that's really good. Like you're 12 or you're 13 or however old you are. Uh, you know, obviously it's good to have high standards for yourself, but as a parent or a coach or a player who's in amateur baseball, guys struggle throwing their breaking ball for strikes their entire literally their entire career and that's what held me back from becoming potentially a big leaguer uh, i just couldn't throw it for strikes enough as the level of play got high enough because as the level of play increases the strike zone decreases and hitters help you less by swinging at fewer balls and pitches out of the zone so the requirements for how good your command of your breaking ball is goes up as you get older and so that same qualification is still there. You know, if you can only throw it some of the time for a strike when you're, um, you know, 14, 15, it's only going to get harder as you go. So the quality, you have to get better in proportion 
to the increases in strike zone, small like size and all that stuff. So it's a lifelong battle. And when parents and kids are like, oh yeah, I can only throw my curveball for strike like some of the time, it's like pretty normal. Like I don't expect much more than that. The goal is just that it continues to get better over time and that it continues to, uh, to sharpen over time. Because once you can throw for a strike, the next task is throwing a really sharp one that can become an out pitch. Because I've talked in other podcasts that every pitcher has to have an out pitch or else sooner or later he'll allow too many batted balls where he just won't be effective anymore. You have to strike a certain amount of hitters out. You have to have a certain amount of quality of stuff to miss barrels and also just to get swings and misses because they're just a part of the game. If you can never get guys to miss, then that also means that they're barreling more balls up. So as we go back to curveballs, number one is don't expect too much too soon. Don't expect them to throw it for strikes all the time. There's a massive learning curve with a, a curveball. So if they're not throwing it for strikes, that's normal. If it's not as sharp as it needs to be, still pretty normal. It just takes time, and they need to continue to practice it in, in their pregame routine. So I've taught this. Uh, my season's almost over with my 14U team. I've taught this to them two weeks ago. So we've been working on it in practice. It's part of their pregame throwing routine, and they're pretty much their everyday throwing routine, is mixing in some amount of curveballs at 40 feet, 50 feet, 60 feet. Not hard, just in like basically catch speed, 50% effort, in an effort to just continue to get their reps. And they're actually allowed to throw curveballs in their next tournament. We have two to go. The last two is uh, 14U, just to get a feel for it. And they're not going to throw a ton of them, but they're just going to start to throw it. Because at some point they have to. And a certain percentage of curveballs is not going to hurt their arms. It's just going to be part of their learning progression. And it'll be exciting for them to get to use it for the first time. So typically I teach it as freshmen entering their freshman year. So I teach it to them in that winter in October. But since I coach a team that's entering that age, we just started a little bit sooner just in the, in the, in the summer. So um, back to just basics. So... Obviously, your mechanics play a big role. So if you haven't had much mechanical instruction and you're about to learn a curveball, you probably need to go in to somebody for mechanical instruction as well because they're going to go hand in hand if your mechanics are better and cleaner because one of the major things is taking your chest towards your target and not rotating too much as you land. Um, so if you're not good at that or you just haven't had much pitching instruction in general in your life, the odds of you throwing a good curveball are extremely slim. So if you're going to learn this pitch, it's also time to invest in some good mechanical instruction from a reputable pitching guy. Because again, they're going to go hand in hand. The better your mechanics are, the faster you're going to learn the pitch. And a lot of times when I get a kid who has a terrible breaking ball or a terrible changeup or whatever, uh, we're not going to address that until I clean up a bunch of his mechanical problems. So that has to happen first because if they don't have good mechanics and that's just like basic checkpoints, you know, along the way, then they're just not going to be able to get their hand into the right position to spin that pitch as well as we want it to. Um, and then, so once we've got a handle for it, and we're throwing it in games. The question is, how do we throw it where we want it? So it seems common sense when I'm about to tell you, but it's not. I didn't learn until I think I was 21 that pitchers try to start a pitch for a certain spot, a visual focal point, knowing that the break, if they start at that point, the break will take it down to the mitt where it finishes. I just somehow, so let me tell you about my curveball. I was taught a curveball. The only lesson, the only lessons I ever did in my life, lessons weren't a big thing when I was a kid. Uh, they became a thing after I was, like, I think, in college. That's when like the lessons scene started to bloom. 
Um, my dad took me to a, to a guy named Dwayne who became a very influential. He was my boss. I worked at his baseball academy, and he was a good friend, helped me get into college, and was just overall a very good mentor to me. But he took me to Dwayne. I think I did three or four lessons, and he taught me a curveball and taught me about like making sort of like a seven with my arm and getting to the front of it. And um, I, I took to it like extremely well and just naturally, boom, after a couple lessons, just spun it really well. And then I was off and running, and I had a filthy, filthy curveball that got me into college. That was the only reason my coach told me when he came out to recruit me. I was 78 to 81, touching 83, but he said that you have the best curveball I've seen from a high school pitcher in 20 years. So he's like, if you throw, start throwing harder and command your fastball a little bit better with that curveball, you get Division One hitters out today, uh, you're going to have something. So he took a chance on me, no scholarship money. And, uh, and that was it. So my curveball was literally, literally my ticket to college baseball and then later pro baseball and then this whole life that I have now. So I was just one of those lucky kids. I was one of those monkeys on typewriters that I got shown the curveball. I got a couple lessons from a very good instructor, and then I just ran with it, and I just naturally had it. And I've realized that one of the things that I have that other people don't is I have extremely flexible wrists, number one. I think that plays a factor. So if you look at my gross wrists here on YouTube, they fold down super far. My fingers are super flexible. Uh, I think my wrist flexibility has helped me get really good spin on the baseball. I also have, I'm really good at using my thumb when I throw it. So again, if you're watching this video, I sort of, as my pitch comes through, as my arm comes through, my thumb sort of rolls back and then I roll it forward all at once. So kind of like that. This thing that I'm doing right here, it looks really like I'm just tossing it to myself, but I'm actually rolling it back and I'm rolling it up all at once. And I can spin the ball really, really fast, just tossing it to myself. And that happens at full speed when I'm throwing it. No one ever taught me that. He didn't teach me that. It was just a thing that I did that I later learned that I could do, that I could kind of like sync up the, the coordination between my thumb and my index finger going over top of the ball. So I think that for me is the variable that has given me a really sharp uh, curveball. So... Stuff like that, I've never been able to teach someone else. I give that someone else, I show them how to do this, and they go like, bleh, like they can't do it. I don't know if it's a combination of my wrist being flexible, my fingers being flexible, and then just, I don't know. But that's something that I think that I do that has increased the spin of my, my breaking ball. From there, I just threw it, and I got really good at it. I got really good at throwing it for a strike, but I knew when my coach told me at 21 in collegiate summer ball, that I'm supposed to pick a spot on like the catcher's mask and throw my curveball for his mask, knowing that it'll break 16 inches down in the mitt. I was like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. Because my whole life, I just sort of like threw it and mentally was just like, I want it to go here. I want it to bounce on the plate. I wanted to go right to my catcher's mitt. But I mentally just like thought that and then I just threw it. I never like visually did anything. I never like tried to get my hand to a certain spot. I never had any real concrete way of actually getting it to go where it was supposed to go, which when you think about it is crazy. It's like, how, how can I reliably know that I'm going to bounce this curveball when the game's on the line if I don't have any way of differentiating between a curveball that breaks to the middle of the zone versus the one that breaks to the plate? And I don't have an answer for it now. I don't know how I did that. And so that really then took off or increased my learning with my breaking ball because once I knew how to do that, and it was still tough for me to lock on. I was a guy who my eyes would sort of go away. They would go down because my leg kicked. I never locked my eyes on consistently on the plate. But 
once I knew that when I had to bounce one, I had to change my focal point and basically throw my hand to that focal point, then I could differentiate where my curveball was going to end up, or at least where I thought it was going to end up, or where I absolutely had to have it end up. So if the game was on the line, I had to bounce a curveball. Say there's like winning run on third or time run on third, and I've got two bases open and two outs, and I got a guy one, two. I know I've got two or three chances to spike a curveball and get him to swing and miss. So if I walk him, no one cares, but I can't leave it up in the zone where he can hit it. So I'm, my eyes are focused on the catcher's mitt, my shoulder, my chest, my, my hands, my middle knuckle. They all go to the catcher's mitt knowing that if I start for the catcher's mitt, it's going to then break 14, 15 inches down into the, into the plate. So I knew like, okay, game's on the line. I've got to start this for the mitt. I've got to throw it for the mitt. Everything in my body was get your hand to the mitt. Now, if I want to throw for a called strike, you know, it's OO or whatever, it's for the mask or somewhere like that. You know, I had a little bit of lateral break. I wasn't a 12 6 guy. Uh, well, I was early on, but then I was more of a, a 1 to 7 guy once my arm slot came a little more, more normal. I was a real high arm slot kid as a, as a high school and then early freshman and college pitcher. But, uh, you know, I would hammer my hand to the catcher's mask, pulling it from there, knowing it would break 14, 15 inches into the catcher's mitt. So that's how you can differentiate it. And then there's a third location. Really, there's only three locations that I think you use as a pitcher with a breaking ball, and that's called strike down the middle. And that should, again, always be the bottom of the zone if possible, like right right the kneecap. That's like OO or behind, so even or behind. And then bottom of the kneecap on the outer third of the plate or outer corner, so glove side third or glove side corner is what I mean. So that's like if, if it's a righty-righty curveball, this one breaks right below his kneecap right on the corner of the plate where it's borderline ball strike, where if they take it, they might strike out. If they hit it, they're definitely going to ground out. They're also going to uh, swing and miss a certain percent of the percentage of the time. And if they take it, it will also be called a ball a certain percent of the time. So it's too close to take. And if they're going to swing, they're not going to hit it well. They'll strike out some of the time. It's a pretty good result. But that pitch is crucial because we don't want to always be trying to bounce curveballs when we have two strikes. So if you do that all the time, you're going to miss too often. You're going to run your pitch count super, super high. You can't try to punch everyone out. So you want to have the mindset that we're looking for contact all the time except when it's 0-2 or when it's a situation where we have multiple bases open or one base open and a crucial run, a critical run on one base. So that, that's where it changes. I won't get too much into that today. But basically, there's three locations. For a called strike down the middle, hopefully, again, at the bottom of the zone, on the glove side third or corner of the plate at the bottom of the kneecap where it's borderline ball strike because again we want him to swing we want him to know that he has to swing on that because we want the bat to end when it's one and two and then o2 we want to try for a strikeout because it eliminates bloopers eliminates seeing eye ground ball base hits it eliminates swinging bunts it eliminates errors it's a great time we need to try for a strike on row two because we're far enough ahead that's the time where we're trying to bounce a curveball on the point of the plate because the point of the play is where it flies long enough, where it looks like a strike longer than any other location, but will still dip out of the zone before they can actually hit it. We want this zero-sum outcome where they're going to swing and miss or they're going to take it for a ball, and there's nothing in between. You know, obviously they could maybe foul tip it or something, but in general, on 0-2, we're looking for a zero-sum outcome, strikeout or ball one. We don't want them to be able to hit it at all. If they, did, if we, they can hit it at all, this is why I don't think, you know, fastball in the black low and away is a strikeout pitch or really an appropriate O2 pitch. Obviously, it's an appropriate O2 pitch in some scenarios, but 
I don't really think it's an appropriate two-pitch because you could hit a fastball on the black at, at the kneecap. They could hit it if they swing at it. But with a curveball that breaks onto the plate, they really can't hit it unless they're like Vladimir Guerrero. Fastball, you know, a little bit above the letters, they really can't hit it. I mean, they could foul it off, but they really can't hit it. So we're going to get that black and white, that zero-sum outcome where, again, ball one or strikeout. So those are the three locations. But I'll tell you what, it's super hard to be able to differentiate all three of those. And for me, I could do two of them down the middle and bounce. And that was really about the best I could do. I could never get that third one consistently. You know, I'd try, but it was usually either one or the other. Find that in-between zone between the one down the middle and the one in the dirt was really, really tough. But the good pitchers have that. That's what they can do. And as the strike zone shrunk and shrunk and shrunk, as I played longer and longer and rose through some ranks, the qualifications for me making those pitches was even tougher because the breaking, the curveball with the big break, it looks like a strike less of the time to the umpire, I guess, where they're going to call it only for a strike in like this like brick-sized, almost less than a shoebox sort of zone. It seems a little unfair at times where sliders – you know, they're like starting more in the middle of the plate and they, you know, they, they're more lateral, lateral break than a curveball, less vertical break than a curveball. So they just look like a strike longer, I think, than a curveball does. And so the qualification for them to be a called strike seems to be a lot easier. But for the curveball, I think it's a more effective pitch. I think it's safer in the sense that when you hang a curveball, it usually hangs too high up out of the zone where they can't do anything with it. And when you throw it very, very well, it's a lot harder to hit hard. Um, there's that unsafe middle ground where you throw it for a called strike where a guy waits on it and he can lift it really easy. But that's, again, that little band, that little zone where you throw that pitch into that spot is actually really, really slim. Whereas with a slider, you can miss with it. You can throw it for strikes a lot easier. But when you don't catch it right, it can back up or it can just cement mix. And then it stays right down the middle of the plate, eight or nine miles per hour slower than their fastball. And guys tend to destroy that pitch. So there's pros and cons with bro both of those breaking balls. But the curveball for me has always been a lot safer, especially when you're throwing it really, really hard and full speed. So that's the other thing I want to touch on is curveballs are meant to be thrown absolutely as hard as you can freaking throw them. You know, coaches sometimes they say, well, you know, you should throw it softer so you have a bigger speed change. It's not true because the goal of the curveball and the way it becomes sharp looking, and I use this term sharp, uh, it's really just sort of like an optical illusion, but basically a curveball the longer it follows the fastball's path so we you know we call that pitch tunneling now but you know a fastball goes down a certain tunnel you know if you took a like a tracer on it like a tracer bullet and the fastball had this like tracer on it it would make this long gradual decline towards the plate the curveball is going to if the if it takes that same initial trajectory longer it looks sharper so the harder you can throw a curveball basically like forcing it down that same rail before it breaks, before it starts to deviate off of that because it's a curveball, uh, the sharper it's going to look. Because the hitter, to his brain, he sees that pitch come down that same trajectory as the fastball. So he's reading it like that. And then when it starts to deviate, even though it's a smooth, curveballs never actually break sharp. It's always a gradual, uh, smooth break. Uh, when it finally does deviate, it looks sudden to him because of his point of view and because of the way he was expecting it to stay on the fastball's track. So that's how curveballs work. So when you throw them slower, the slower they get relative to the fastball, the earlier they have to deviate from that, that tunnel, that track, because when they're thrown slower but they're still for a strike, they have to start higher because they're going to go into that same spot. So obviously, if you're going to throw a fastball and a curveball to end up in the same spot, 
the fastball takes a lower initial trajectory because it's got backspin that keeps it going up. But when a curveball's got 14 inches of break and it's 15 miles per hour slower coming out of your hand, it has to start higher up. It has to go up earlier and longer for it to then account for the 14 inches of break to land in that same spot. So they can't possibly really tunnel that long when they end up in the same location. So your best bet is, okay, the fastball's gonna be here and my curveball's gonna end up in a spot 14 inches lower. So then I throw them out of the same tunnel for a long period of time and they look like the same pitch longer. So you can't possibly make two pitches tunnel that well, but the harder you throw your curve, you know, if they're gonna end up in, in a similar spot, uh, similar ending spot, but you can start them in similar starting spots. So again, if you throw it, a, cur a fastball at the letters and a curveball starting at the letters, the curveball is going to end up at the kneecaps, but they're both going to take that first initial trajectory together, and they're going to look like a curve. Uh, going to curveball is going to look like a fastball a lot longer. So that is uh, that's kind of like the gist of of that. But you have to throw them as hard as possible to get it to have any chance to follow the fastball's tunnel and look like a fastball longer, which again makes it look sharper when it breaks. So that's the critical component of the curveball a lot of people miss. They ease off it or they sink into their back leg and they go up with it a little bit. And then that, that initial trajectory kind of pops up. And then they see pop up instead of sharp angle down out of the hand. And then they can tell, okay, curveball, fastball. They can see it and they pick it up or they pick it up, put their foot down again, and then they smash it. So throwing the curveball as hard as humanly possible is absolutely critical and it's really tough to get it as hard as you i mean you see guys throwing 80 mile per hour curveballs on tv it's so hard to do that so hard to do that people don't understand how hard it is to throw it that hard you know and for me as i got ready for my seasons every year i'd throw 86 to 89 indoors for the most part you know i was a 91 94 pitcher in the games but i was a big adrenaline guy so i was always 86 to 89 maybe not 90 indoors my curveball usually was just plopping in at like 68 70 early in the season when i was just getting up to full speed or full indoor speed and it took a lot of effort like a lot of extra effort to throw that curveball as hard as i could to get it closer to that 15 mile per hour uh, drop that i was looking for so the what we're looking for as far as curveball speed differential is about 15 percent 15 to 18 percent 20 percent is a little too high so if you're throwing 80 miles per hour 20% would be 16 miles per hour off, so you're throwing a 64 mile per hour curveball off an 80 mile per hour fastball. Uh, but again, goal is somewhere more like 15%. So if you can get 15 to 17% off of 80, that's more like 68, so 12 miles per hour slower. That's going to be a lot more effective pitch because A, it's going faster, so they have to make their decision quicker whether to swing. And when they have to decide earlier, they're not going to be able to count for the break quite as long. And B, you're going to force it down the fastball's path longer, so it's going to make it look like it tunnels. It's going to look like a fastball longer and look sharper just as a result. So even when it doesn't tunnel, it's still going to look like a, like a fastball longer, tr tricking the batter into thinking that initial trajectory means fastball. Okay, So that's one of the critical components of, of a curveball, throwing it as hard as you possibly can. Now, when you're learning it, you have to start, start slow. So when you start with your learning progression, the drills that I prefer to use are square hips drill, rocker drill, heel toe drill, and then your wind up or your stretch, and then just going from you know a 50% intensity kind of catch. Uh, if you don't know those three drills, you can jump on one of my free online courses, and, and you can easily see them on various uh, blog posts on my website. But 
They're real basic. They tend to isolate the body a little bit and allow you to feel for the hand position. Because when you have too much of your mechanics going on, when you're like your full mechanics, especially if you have mechanical flaws, it's going to make it tougher to get a feel for what good and bad spin is because your mechanics are screwing it up and not letting you feel it. So when we can sort of constrain our body a little bit with drills and make it a little bit tougher to get, you know, fly off uh, one side or the other or whatever, um, that's going to help us isolate our hand as like the variable of interest to then get better at the hand action and the, and the spin. And then we come back and fill in the rest of the mechanics and get the hand while we're still throwing with full mechanics. That's sort of the process. And I've had really good results teaching it that way. So the big thing with the curveball is give it time, have a progression, throw it consistently at low speeds. If you're always throwing at full speeds, you're not going to be able to feel the differences and make the adjustments that you need to make. You have to start learning it slow. You have to give it a lot of reps. Lots of slow reps are not going to hurt your arm. Lots of game reps are what are going to give you arm problems if you're throwing too many curveballs. But once you get mature enough, you know, you learn as a freshman, throw it 10, 15% of the time as a freshman. As a sophomore, still 10, 15% of the time at max. And then as a, as a junior, if you want to throw a little bit more, like 20% of the time, 25% of the time, so be it. You're going to be probably skeletally mature enough by then. But you shouldn't be relying on your curveball as a, as a, a, as a youth pitcher at all or B, as a freshman or sophomore. You should be developing it, and it should be a back burner pitch to your command and to your changeup. So as in a typical skew of, say, 70% fastballs or 65% fastballs, it should be 25% changeups, 10% curveballs, something like that, with, again, the, the higher prevalence being the changeup. As you get a little older, 17, 18, and above, if your curveball or slider is the better pitch, you can go 20, 25% sliders, curveballs, and 10, 15% changeups or whatever it is. You can make that decision. But when you see youth pitchers throwing 30%, 50%, which happens, that's just a travesty. They're getting poorly coached, and they're looking for quick results now with the sacrifice of maybe their long-term arm health and also just their long-term ability to pitch. Because when you just th learn to get hitters out by just throwing silly, loopy, crappy curveballs, that's not teaching you how to pitch long-term because that pitch is eventually going to come to the point where it's not very good anymore. You know, this little league curveball that you learned that you throw all the time because you're in love with, uh, that's going to get to high school and it's going to be this loopy piece of junk that hitters are now good enough to hit. And now that pitch is gone. You can't really use it effectively anymore. So now you have to like, oh crap, now I need to learn either a real breaking ball, real curveball, real slider, or I need to quickly teach myself how to pitch again because I don't know how to pitch because I threw so many curveballs. I didn't have to learn. I didn't have to learn how to command my fastball. I didn't have to learn how to throw a chain of first strike. So you don't want to stunt your long-term development as a pitcher by over-relying on the curveball early. You know, it's better to lose a little more, a few more games. And my team's done that, not throwing so many breaking balls, um, you know, because long-term we're going to be better. I told my kids they focus on their fastball location and their changeup. When they get that curveball added to the mix, they're just going to quickly become dominant because it's like fighting, you know, learning to box and be competent with just one arm. When you get that other arm back, you look out, you know, and that's sort of the, the approach here because when you suddenly have three pitches, but you already learn how to command two of them, you're just going to be in really, really good shape. But when you're only, you know, backburnering the rest of your development because you have a great curveball or what you think is a great curveball that you want to throw all the time, it's just going to come back to, to stunt your long-term development. So 
I don't know if that's everything I know about the curveball. It's definitely not. But I think that's about as much as I want to impart for today. If you have more questions about the curveball, leave them as a comment in YouTube or in my podcast. Shoot me an email, and I'll make sure I address them in another, maybe more advanced um, segment on the curveball. But it's a topic I love. I mean, the curveball is a crazy, it's a fun pitch to learn. It's the first breaking ball. Youth pitchers learn. They usually learn the, the slider later on because their curveball is not good enough. Um, but if you're taught it the right way, you can definitely get it. And it can be a lifetime, a, a lifelong pitch like it was for me. But there's obviously some pros and cons. There's a right way to do it. There's a right way to teach it. There's a right way to coach it. And uh, there's a right way to approach the learning curve. So parents be patient. Coaches be patient. Kids be patient. It's not going to be great overnight. You just have to give it time just like anything else. Imagine you learn to switch hit. You would not expect yourself suddenly to be great from the left side if you were a righty, right? It would take some time. You would know that it's a process. Uh, it's the same thing with the new pitch. It's completely different to spin it and then to get it to break, and then to get it to break, break sharper, and then to get it to go to the exact location that you want, and then to differentiate for three different locations for three different purposes. It's a lot. It really is a lot. And you can only throw so many of them in practice, too. It's not like a fastball where every time you throw it, you know, you're going to throw 70 in practice every day or whatever. Uh, you're only going to throw a certain amount of curveballs because you're not going to go throw 80 curveballs every day of the week in practice. Your arm would probably hate you for it. So you're only going to get maybe 15 or 20 a day as part of your throwing routine, and you should get those 15 or 20 each day as part of your throwing routine. But you have to really be focused on knowing what you're doing when you do them. Otherwise, it's not going to add up in any appreciable amount if you're getting 15 junky reps or whatever. So um, all this stuff is really important. If you again, if you have questions, just shoot me uh, shoot me a message, and we'll talk more about the curveball. All right, that was it for uh, episode fifty. So we're uh, still cruising along, and man, I guess we're now marching towards a hundred episodes, maybe next year. So thanks again, and again, feel free to leave me a review on iTunes. Feel free to share this on social media. Leave me a comment on YouTube. Send me an email. Whatever it is, you've. Uh, comments suggestions for future episodes just please let me know and lastly if you do want to sponsor the show or my content jump on my patreon page and you can easily do that starting at a dollar a month all right talk to you later we'll see you next week on dear baseball gods